This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon on this Maziol afternoon. Claudette, is it just me or does it suddenly feel a bit chilly? What's the temperature it out does. there now? I haven't taken off uh, my jacket. It was around 13. Yeah, there you yeah. go. So I can double check that. <laughs> but, you know, the last time I checked, it was around it was around 13 degrees. But it, it feels a lot cooler than that, actually. Yeah, I just got a chill and I'm wearing like, you know, a wintry type of long sleeve shirt. And it's, even that I'm finding. Ooh, yeah, it's still 13. Yeah, well, there you go. But it is wet and miserable, so I guess that gets in your bones. It does. It's probably why we want those comfort soups, you know, this time of year. What kind of comfort soups? Oh, well, there's a whole topic for our listeners. <laughs> I know we can't take up your show with it, but mine you could. <laughs> Listen, I got a cousin out there, Cindy in Gander Bay. She's probably listening right now, and she's continually posting. She's bottling some beets today. Oh, yum. They're my favorite. I eat and, that like a meat. And the other day, she made it like a pea soup, and she's always posting these. And it's like, jumping dying, so I'm getting in the car and going up to Gander Bay. Oh, and uh, moose soup. Oh my God, <laughs> it's amazing. There's a, all, I can get into so many different ones. I like a lot of freaky soups too, but. Freaky soup, yeah. okay. A lot all right. of heat, a lot of carrots. <laughs> freaky soups. <laughs> well, ones that, you know, most Newfoundlanders, I would suspect they would like the regular ones, right? Like chicken noodle or beef barley, which is my favorite. Ooh, yeah, right? now there's a hearty meal right there. Yeah, but, and pea soup. But then, you know, my sisters and I like to experiment a bit, and she came across one in a company's coming book, <laughs> carrot saute. And it. I was wondering why it tastes so good, and I tend to not eat too much dairy, but she told me after the fact it had cream cheese in it. No wonder well, it was that'll so do it. good, right? Yeah, yeah, like, you know. I wonder why this is so deliciously yeah. unhealthy for me. Cream cream cheese. Yeah. There you go. Um, I made a, a, a friend of mine gave me a recipe for a cabbage soup. Oh, that nice. That is, you use like Italian sausage in it. Oh, really? Oh, wasn't that oh, yummy? Oh, I would love that. I would love that. And it was so hearty and so comforting yeah. and so yummy. you think cabbage soup, it would be like on the pale or green side of things. No, it was red and, and rich. It was delicious. And delicious. Oh, oh, stop. My. You're reminding me now, Brian <laughs> O'Connell made, now years ago he did. I told him if he had a drive through through his house, I'd pop by his window and get it. Uh, Italian wedding? I'm not sure oh, if that's yes, made with yeah. sausage or not yeah. as well. but. He makes it, unless it was his wife that made it, but one of them in the O'Connell household made it, and it was so good. I remember it from years ago. Well, there's a topic uh, we could talk for days, apparently, about uh, yummy soups on a cold and miserable old day. Um, But we're going to move to education now, (laughs) or early childhood education, more like. The province has announced new measures to help address increased recruitment and retention of early childhood educators. An early childhood educator recruitment and retention grant will provide funding to um, uh, attract level one through level four ECEs to become certified and work in regulated child care centers. Um, Education Minister Crystalline Howell provided details of the new grant earlier today. Uh, first, we'll hear from her and then Joanne Morris, chair of the ECE Human Resources Council. 
Today is a good day, and I'm very pleased to be here during the Week of Wellbeing to announce a new initiative to recruit and retain early childhood educators. There's no doubt that a quality education for children at a young age leads to the well-being of children as they grow, to their families, and to their communities, and this includes our early learning and childcare. A key part of supporting accessible, high-quality childcare systems is to ensure that there are trained early childhood educators working in the profession to meet the early learning needs throughout the province. Today, I'm pleased to announce a new Early Childhood Educator Recruitment and Retention Grant. This grant is being implemented to directly support recruitment and retention efforts of qualified early childhood educators in Newfoundland and Labrador. The ECE recruitment and retention grant will be provided to eligible level one to level four early childhood educators working in regulated childcare services. Effective September 1st, 2023, ECEs who meet the requirements for uh, eligibility criteria of the ECE recruitment and retention grant policy will be eligible to receive a maximum of $2,500 for their initial child care services certification through the Association of Early Childhood Educators of Newfoundland and Labrador. ECEs who are eligible will receive up to $2,500 upon a three-year renewal of their certification up to a total amount of $7,500. The grant includes a commitment for recipients to work in regulated child care services in Newfoundland and Labrador. And as a testament to the ongoing collaboration, the Association of Early Childhood Educators Newfoundland and Labrador, or ASINL, will be administering on behalf of the Department of Education uh, they will assess and process all of the ECE bursaries and grants. The new ECE recruitment and retention grant is an additional measure that our government is putting in place to support the recruitment and retention of early childhood educators. Some other important initiatives that we've already put in place include the ECE training bursary program, the ECE on-campus field placement bursary, and the ECE needs-based tuition grant. So each of these grants aim to decrease barriers for individuals looking to join the ECE. ECE profession. For ECEs who are currently working in the profession, we've also taken additional action to encourage retention, including implementing the ECE wage grid in April of 2023, um, giving allowances for ECEs in administration roles and uh, Labrador allowances for those in Labrador, as well as a wage grid francophone bonus for certified francophone ECEs in regulated francophone childcare services. This is an exciting time for people considering a career in early learning and childcare. And we want to encourage everybody to take the next steps and to enroll in a program. We've made significant steps forward. We know there's still a ways to go, but we do recognize the important role that early childhood educators play in the lives of our children, our families, and our communities. So I encourage any of those who may have left the field to take up this new opportunity and return to what is truly a rewarding career path. Early learning and childcare continues to be a priority for the provincial government. We'll continue to work so that families throughout the province have accessible early learning and childcare services that they need. It's with great pleasure that uh, I was asked to come here today and share some of uh, my uh, messages from the Early Childhood Educators Human Resources Council. 
This announcement today about new bursaries for early childhood educators demonstrates this government's commitment to building a strong early learning and childcare workforce for this sector. It recognizes that the work carried out every day in childcare centers and in family childcare homes uh, to the youngest of our population is so important and for the, for the creation of spaces for parents who go to work and go to school so that their families are thriving and enjoying a better well-being. Bursaries are a concrete way of showing that early childhood educators are worth more than the salaries that they earn. Bursaries that recognize certification within a workforce acknowledge that learning, um, that being qualified to perform this work is critical for the high quality nurturing care that our children need and for the provision of stimulating learning environments that young children will experience while their brains are still developing and the neural pathways are still developing. Being certified to guide children's behavior means that knowledge in social-emotional development is the basis for helping young children acquire the social skills they need in life. Recruitment of the best and the brightest of individuals to become early childhood educators is what society needs. Bursaries that help to retain these individuals long-term help to, be, to build a sense of collegiality within a workforce and also deep relationships with children and their families. Continued recognition as described, as Sky was describing and Minister Howell was describing, where certification will be uh, recognized with advanced education, we know that, that early childhood educators will benefit from this as they advance their education and participate in professional learning opportunities throughout their certification process. Research has clearly shown that there are many early childhood educators in this province who are qualified. Some have had to leave the sector because they haven't up to now been able to earn a living wage or have paid benefits. This new national early learning and childcare system that is being built in Canada will be enhanced by these kinds of provincial policies that will strengthen recruitment, retention, and reattraction of qualified early childhood educators. Bursaries are a good start, but they do need, need to be sustained over time. The ECEHR Council, who I represent, recommends that in the future the next set of considerations need to be uh, two main things, the integration of these bursaries into the provincial wage scale over time and that paid benefits be provided for this workforce. Steps such as these announced today will help uh, to build a strong early learning and childcare workforce and a positive future for our children, for our families, and ultimately for our communities. So that's Joanne Morris. She's chair of the ECE Human Resources Council, uh, joined by Education Minister Crystalline Howell, who announced this new um, grant program to help recruit and retain uh, ECEs in the uh, province's early childhood care services 
system. Uh, well, coming up, the Privacy Commissioner worried about turning back the clock on access to information. This is News Talk on VOCM. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And we're back. Well, the province's Privacy Commissioner is calling on government to restore the authority of his office to demand to see certain records in order to ensure that government and public bodies are being open and transparent as required by law. Michael Harvey says the ability of the commissioner to demand to examine documents during investigation that a public body claims are subject to solicitor-client privilege is central to how the office performs its independent oversight function. He asks if his office cannot examine the documents to ensure that the privilege actually applies, then how could those requesting an investigation be confident in the access to information process? Well, Privacy Commissioner uh, joins me now. Well, good afternoon, Michael Harvey. Hi, Linda. So you've put out this release asking government for a legislative change uh, to allow your office to do what it's intended to do, and that is to be an oversight on uh, government public bodies to make sure that they're open and transparent. Uh, So what is at issue here? Yeah, this is a long and complicated story that goes back for many years, but at the crux of it is our ability to examine certain kinds of records that people might be interested in looking for to confirm whether or not their legal advice. So when someone submits an access to information request to the government or another public body, there's the default is they get that information. But there are a limited number of exceptions that allow a public body to withhold it. And one of those exceptions is if it's legal advice. And if it's legal advice, then they are absolutely allowed to withhold it. The only question is, is it actually legal advice? And this is the principle of solicitor-client privilege, and it is a foundation of the legal system in Canada. And so this has been a a controversial subject for many, many years in uh, the context of access to information. If you go back to the infamous Bill 29 episode of 2012, when the government introduced a number of amendments to the Access to Information Act that would pull back the right of access, One of them was that they denied my office's ability to examine uh, solicitor client uh, records that a public body said were subject to solicitor client. So, you know, I just want to illustrate how this would work. So let's say that you're an applicant and you ask for some some records and uh, the public body says, well, I'm not giving you, I'll give you these records, but I'm not going to give you these records because they're, let's say, policy advice. And I'm not going to give you these records because because they're legal advice. And so you, the applicant, then will could complain to my office. And if you do, you complain to my office, I can say, well, let me take a look at the record and let me ensure you that these, in fact, are, are legitimate uses of these exceptions. Uh, in this case, I will be able to look at the the documents that they say are covered by policy advice, but the solicitor-client ones, they say, no, you can't, you can't even look at them. So there's no way to be sure 
that uh, that they are indeed legal advice. So that's a big hole because it, it opens the potential up for a public body to just say, uh, well, it's all legal advice. And uh, and therefore, there there's no ability for my office to look at them. And the only recourse then is to go to the courts. And, the, and that's a, a lengthy process, and it could potentially be an expensive one. And so this problem has uh, was one that back in 2015, the, the government uh, of the day, in order to reverse the changes of Bill 29 and, and bring in what is, in all other respects, the best uh, legislation in the country in this area, uh, they reversed that and, and explicitly meant to give us that authority. Um, but uh, a Supreme Court of Canada decision uh, out in Alberta kind of um, uh, changed the way that the law works. And after trying to fix this in the courts uh, over the last number of years, uh, we eventually got a court of appeal decision that uh, was not in our favor. And so now we have realized that it needs to be fixed again in the legislature. I know that's a long story, but, uh, but it has been a, a bit of a saga. So it, it, has there been any indication from government that it would be willing to look at this legislative change to, to allow you access, even just to say, okay, this is in fact uh, solicitor client privilege, or it's not? Well, this was a matter that we raised before the statutory review of the Access to Information Act that uh, was conducted in 2020 and issued its report to Minister Hogan in uh, 2021. So that report has been with Minister Hogan uh, since 2021. And one of the recommendations, uh, the Honorable David Orsborn, who conducted that review, uh, did agree with the principle that we were advancing, that we need to have the ability to review those recommendations records uh, when absolutely necessary to uh, confirm that in, indeed it's legal advice. So uh, he made a recommendation about that to as part of his report, and that report has been with uh, Minister Hogan uh, since then. In the ver- at the very last sitting day of in the spring, the minister uh, gave notice of amendments to ATIPA, um, so we don't know exactly what those amendments are going to contain, um, but there is the potential for this to be on the legislative agenda in the fall, and this would be a great opportunity for the government to uh, to fix this um, to fix this problem and to go back to what everybody agreed in 2015 was an important way to fix uh, this office's oversight. Right. I guess the concern here is that, uh, you know, there is a there's a significant loophole when it comes to just, uh, you know, trust us. That's right. You know, that's that's the problem that uh, that we need to address that um, now, you know, there there are those who would say, well, you know, there, the loophole can be closed by the courts. But our position is the the OIPC was created uh, to give a timely and uh, and no cost uh, ability for oversight of the access to information without making applicants go to court. And um, and so we did that. We performed that function from 2015 until 20- 2019 without any controversy and um, uh, and it was it really uh, uh, you know just an effect of what happened in an entirely different province out in Alberta that created a problem for how our law worked and uh, so this is just a matter of, of fixing things and going back to what everybody agreed in 2015 was the right model of oversight.
Michael Harvey, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Linda. So Michael Harvey there uh, asking uh, for some legislative change that would uh, basically allow him uh, to conduct his um, role uh, as was intended in the orig- uh, the updated ATIP legislation um, put out in 2015. Um, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. It's not so much that it is uh, solicitor-client privilege. It's that it is, in fact, solicitor-client privilege as is being used as a um, um, way Default? to block that yeah. information, Yeah, if you will. Well, um, inflation. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Inflation went up in August month, and higher gas prices are believed to be a big reason for that. Uh, when the, the price of gas goes up, the price of getting things where they need to go goes up, and everything goes up. Uh, Statistics Canada released the figures today, marking the second month in a row in which uh, inflation rose. Inflation was up from 3.3% in July. This is nationally now. It doesn't go by pro- province. In, in Newfoundland and Labrador, it actually went up higher than that. Uh, grocery prices rose at a slower annual rate, rising 6.9% over the previous year, but down from the 8.5% increase the previous month. Uh, So while uh, inflation on groceries has gone down month over month uh, from last year, it's still uh, up by a big margin, almost 7%. The Bank of Canada, which has increased interest rates to cool inflation, decided to hold its key interest rate earlier this month amid growing concerns raised by provincial premiers, including Newfoundland and Labrador's Andrew Fury. But is it having any impact? It will eventually have an impact, one would think. But if the price of gas remains high, um, it affects everything. CIBC's executive director of economics says the latest inflation more discouraging than many expected. Andrew Grantham says the Bank of Canada will have to weigh these figures against signs of a weakening economy when considering its next interest rate decision. Earlier today, Stats Canada, as we just reported, uh, indicated that inflation had jumped to 4% in August from 3% in July, marking the second straight monthly increase. And of course, uh, the Bank of Canada wants to see in inflation down below 3%. So it raises uh, interest rates to kind of slow things down. And it's done so, I don't know, is it five, five or six times in the last year and a half or so? Uh, just extraordinary. So it's putting a, a squeeze on absolutely everyone. If you have anything to say on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, coming up, the business community hears from the health minister and Pat Parfrey about efforts to create better health care outcomes. This is News Talk on VOCM. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration, shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. So it sounds like it's going to be a wet one overnight tonight. Uh, so if you have to travel, uh, please be aware of that uh, and keep your speeds down because we all know that uh, water does like to accumulate on the road. And I find, I don't know about you, uh, Claudette, but I find that driving at night now when the highway is wet, I have a really hard time seeing anything. It's that. And it's also, in depending on the roads you're on, the lack of lines or we just can't see the lines. And so you're just confused by it all. And uh, I, I see why there are certain family members, too. For me, it's like once it hits a certain hour, they're not going out at all. 
because of that. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a good situation when, you know, you're you're making these decisions based on road conditions, and you know, in some cases, there are things that can be you know addressed Fixed as opposed to the weather which we can't rain. address no yeah uh interesting indeed well the st john's board of trade played host today to a panel consisting of health minister tom osborne and deputy minister of health transformation pat parfrey to gain a better understanding of health care and the social determinants of health well here's ceo of the st john's board of trade Anne marie boudreau and she was in the position of asking questions on behalf of both herself and and her members, they uh, had uh, sought contributions from their membership on what kind of questions to ask. Well, here she is asking a few of those questions to uh, Minister Osborne and Pat Parfrey about uh, issues of importance to her members. What do you believe is the most significant and impactful change that has come through the development of the Health Accord uh, that is helping with the, well, I guess, with the state of the system right now and really allowing for progress and change? Uh, so there's a couple of changes. One, obviously, recruitment and retention. We need healthcare professionals in, the, in order to be able to provide primary care. But I think the key issue that we've been working on, and I'm, I'm going to ask Dr. Parfrey to expand on this as well. Uh, as I said, he is the godfather of, of the health accord. Um, and has laid out very clearly a very solid plan. But the family care teams, ensuring a multidisciplinary approach to providing primary care. Uh, I mean, there's so many areas, surgical wait lists. We've had a, a surgical task force focusing on the backlog and providing solutions. So you know, we're, we're reaching out to all of the individuals that can help provide the solutions. Not, you know, thinking that we have the answers, mm -hmm. because the answers, my best answers come from your best answers and the best answers of the frontline workers. But I think if I were to pick one single transformation that is really the cornerstone would be the family care teams and that multidisciplinary approach where you'll be triaged when you go through the door and determine are you best to see a social worker, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a physician and the right provider provide you with the right care and if you're part of the family care team you'll always belong to that team. Uh, Pat, did you want to expand on that a little? Um, I, th I think that the glue that holds the system together is definitely the family care teams in which there's a, a very substantial uh, financial investment being made and going to be made. But I do think that you have to, th you do really have to think of the system as being, as being needing, as, as being, it needs to be integrated and you need to think holistically about it. So isolating one particular action from another is probably a false way to go. It may, it may diminish complexity, but our system is complex and we can't function if we've got a community system that doesn't operate properly, i.e. family care teams, the ambulance system, virtual care. You need three of them to function properly. And then when you get into the hospital system, uh, the minister mentioned efforts to decrease the way we use hospitals, like diminishing alternate level of care. But then there are multiple other pieces of that system that have to operate properly in the areas of priority 
and without a doubt, one of the areas of priority is seniors' care, no doubt about it. That's our, that's our big issue in this province because it's inadequately dealt with and the population is aging. How we deal with uh, the cardiovascular and stroke issues and that institute. And then I think the th two things that you mentioned that are utterly transformational and people don't, are three things that don't really perceive it. Is one is that provincial approach that's now feasible with a provincial health authority, a, a uh, um, health information system that is allowed, that's modern, and an integrated ambulance system. So I think that, uh, I think Anne-Marie's question was too difficult. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it is so complex and it's so necessary to have a holistic approach that we, we do, and, and you can see from the minister's speech that he dealt with each of those components of the jigsaw. And he's trying to put the, put the puzzle together by putting those pieces into that jigsaw. And some of them are already there, and some of them are coming, and some of them are, I, wouldn't, I don't think any of them are a pipe dream, actually. I think every one of those actions that relate to healthcare are, are going forward. Uh, I have some comments to make about the social determinants of health, but I'll leave that for okay. the moment. Okay, you can come back to it, absolutely. I'll say, Emery, quickly, I, I agree with Pat. I mean, that was a difficult question. It doesn't seem like a difficult question, but... It was I mean, meant to be. Yeah, the, yeah. the health information system um, is transformational, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the ensuring that regardless of where you are in the province, you can walk in and without delay, they have access to your, your medical records or you having input into your healthcare journey. You know, there's so many areas that, that we could pick. Yeah, but. yeah absolutely. So um, I hope my next one is not also difficult, but it might be, and you touched on it a little bit, Dr. Parfrey, and that's related to spending. For a long time, we've been hearing that um, problems within our healthcare system are not, in fact, a spending problem. Is that still, is that still true? Would you would you still agree with that sentiment? That it's not about a system that needs more money? We have the highest per capita spend and the worst outcomes in healthcare in all of Canada. So it's not about spending money. And I realize a geographically dispersed province, you know, we've got a lot of geography and the second smallest population. So that in and of itself is going to create more expense but we can be doing things better, and that is what the Health Accord is about. And it's not only fixing the healthcare system, it is assuring we have better well-being, better health for the population. Um, you know, we, whether it's diet or, or exercise, or we have the cleanest water, the cleanest air in Canada, but not the cleanest habits. And Pat, did you want to add to that? I'm going to you anyway. So you're right. yeah. If you're going to ask me about well-being, I'll answer well-being. But I think your answer to the question was, okay. I don't, I've got nothing to add to it. So my next question was exactly that, um, to hear your feedback in terms of, Dr. Parfrey, what is it in your opinion that we should be focusing on? I think that the 2023 budget was a healthcare budget, and it was a health accord budget. And it demonstrated that the government had transitioned from the health accord, which is now a document in the past, to it being the government's plans. And that was demonstrated clearly by the, their, what they're spending their money on. Uh, the piece that 
that is in the process of being developed goes around the health accord in one major statement and it said that we need to raise the awareness and intervene in the social terms of health and rebalance the health system across acute care long-term care and community care and uh, there you have it. That is um, the Deputy Minister of Health Transformation, Pat Parfrey, uh, and the Health Minister, Tom Osborne, speaking today at the St. John's Board of Trade. They had a little sort of panel discussion about health care and how it impacts the entire province as a whole. Um, and the minister outlining that uh, Newfoundland and Labrador are grappling with this whole idea of having the highest per capita spending in the country and yet some of the worst outcomes uh, in the country. And this is uh, Wellness Week, something that the provincial government is highlighting as a way to, I guess, uh, raise awareness about wellness. And we uh, we have a question of the day today, uh, Claudette, if I could bring it up here in a second, uh, related to uh, wellness in Newfoundland and Labrador and the whole question of, uh, you know, Wellness Week and, and keeping people aware of, uh, you know, how to stay well and those kinds of things. And the question is, what would motivate you to live a healthier lifestyle? And there's a number of um, um, options there. Affordable, healthy food choices, uh, better infrastructure, uh, things like, you know, uh, bike lanes and wider shoulders on the sides of the road or better bus routes, those kinds of things to make you feel safer if you're on a bicycle or even uh, walking. Uh, reminders to stay active and offer healthy meal suggestions. And a lot of people have apps on their phone to do just that uh, or I already live a healthy active lifestyle well the results show uh, that uh, not surprisingly an overwhelming majority of people who responded to that question uh, 64 percent say affordable healthy food choices is uh, the number one thing that they feel would help to motivate them to live a healthier lifestyle and we all know the price of everything and the price of fruit in particular has just skyrocketed so it would be a whole lot easier to grab a bunch of grapes and snack on that over lunch as opposed to go to the local vending machine and pick up a bar or a bag of chips if you know what i'm saying um and then the next um largest number of people to respond said i already live a healthy active lifestyle at 19 percent and therein may lie some of the problem i suppose if you don't think uh there's a problem then you might not see a problem if you know what i mean I think I'd like to see more uh, money go towards physical activity. I know that we have a physical activity credit um, that's available to us. Uh, I think it's 3000 is the maximum you can claim, and but you get 348 is the mo most I think you can get from that. I think if more people had choice when it came to physical activity and the cost of it, I, I think that would be uh, a good way to go. But that's just my own personal opinion. Right, uh, because really, yeah. you know, it. I mean, I know we need infrastructure in a province like this so that people stay active in the winter months or in the m when it's raining down and that sort of thing you don't exactly feel like walking around the block or uh, darting up to your mother's house or anything like that on foot uh, on a day like today but uh, you know so we need some kind of infrastructure and everybody somebody has to pay for that you know what I mean so I do see yeah see that sort of thing I see you know a lot of the arenas that we've built in recent years anyway usually have a walking track 
track. CBS has a beautiful arena with that walking track going around. Oh, they do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've been on that. I mm-hmm. prefer to walk outside, of course. But uh, yeah, no, they, they certainly do. I just think there is room for improvement big time. And it's more than just the reminders for us to stay active. It's going to be, I, I'm really interested in, in knowing how this is going to roll out, especially is it, I mean, how will they know? I guess we won't know for years to come whether or not this toolkit that they're giving physicians, if it's going to have a positive impact or or not. I'm like you. I prefer to walk outside to see the birds, trees, and yeah. sky. You know, it's part of the experience, and you don't think of yourself as exercising when you're exactly. taking in, you know, nature around you. I love uh, hiking trails and that. I'm not into the really difficult ones. That's sort of behind me now, we'll say. But uh, I do enjoy, you know, walking near the ocean and those kinds of things and just taking it all in. And um, And we're all so different, right? Yeah. So I, I guess that's what my point is, is that like if everybody had access to money to put towards what they wanted to do as opposed to you know a generalized program like a a gym everybody has to go to this particular gym we'll give you a little bit of money toward that I would rather it be more specific and whether or not that could happen I don't know yeah allow people to make their own choices what makes them happy yeah so it's like the physical tax credit but like on steroids yeah like a lot more and help (laughs) with groceries would be great right around now Thank you. Like, not a big surprise, as you mentioned, that affordable, healthy food choices was the number one thing that would motivate people. It's so we are, you just drive home from work. How many fast food places are you passing? You know, people are probably more opt to get a combo than they are, like you said, like having fruits and nuts and really healthy foods that sustain us on hand. You're going to grab whatever you can at the cheapest point. Uh, But I I have noticed, uh, you know, that uh, a lot of fast food places have those options as well have those salads and yeah, really I feel that you're interesting paying more for yummy it. stuff you know i feel that you're but paying if you're going to be there it. if you're picking up burgers for the youngsters yeah oh my goodness this reminds me <laughs> I didn't Uh-oh. mean it. No, but so I remember when I would try, like, I, I'm always trying to do better, and sometimes I su- succeed and sometimes I don't. But just say you're ordering a combo and you're telling them, uh, no, I don't want fries with that. No, thank you. Oh, but it's cheaper. I'm like, well, I don't want, I said, like, I would go back and forth. They really want you to have those fries with the combo because it's cheaper. And eventually, the back and forth, like ping pong, I eventually said, you can charge me more for not having the fries. I just don't want them in my bag, you know, because you don't want the temptation, right? You're trying to do better. Yeah, it, it's it's true. You know, sometimes those choices aren't there. And uh, I know I've had people buy stuff for me and I'll say, yeah, I want this. Mm-hmm. And they'll come back with this, this, and this. And yep. I was like, well, I didn't order a big big huge thing a drink and I didn't order the fries why did you get that it's cheaper because it was cheaper and I well well, now it's going to waste exactly you know and I don't I was raised not to waste food either so I mean I mean I still won't eat it but you know what I mean it's still there and it's in your face that's my point yeah so yeah (laughs) don't force me to eat stuff (laughs) I like the idea that it's cheaper yeah I do I do I, I really do appreciate that 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 sentiment but if i don't want it don't give it to me don't give it to me (laughs) um anyway we're going to take a short break uh yesterday um Claudette, we spoke with uh, Julia Dauphiné, who was telling us a little about her little daughter, Caroline, and she, oh my goodness, she had the first Terry Fox 
run in Luxembourg, of all places in the EU. So um, I chatted with Julia after, and she's done her own uh, work to um, increase access to cancer care in that European country. And she's from here in Newfoundland, and she's making that kind of a difference over there. So um, we already aired this uh, um, interview, but I thought it was so sweet that I'd air it again. So that's coming up right after this. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. And we're back. And as I just mentioned, the Newfoundland family is making a big difference in their adopted home of Luxembourg that should help other families facing cancer. This weekend, six-year-old Caroline Dauphiné held what's believed to be the European nation's very first Terry Fox Walk for Cancer Research. God bless her. She, uh, her aim was to raise $100, but she raised the equivalent of a $1,000 Canadian. Uh, Caroline was diagnosed with brain cancer when she was just 20 months old after surgery numerous treatments in Paris, France. That's a good four-hour drive away. She's been in remission for the last three years. Well, she's not the only person in the Dauphiné family to fight for cancer patients. Her mom, Julia, who is from St. John's, took her family's experience and went all the way to the Luxembourg legislature seeking changes. Here's the rest of my conversation with Julia Dauphiné. Well, Julia, it sounds like uh, Caroline gets this honestly. Uh, You've been doing your own activism there in Luxembourg when it comes to cancer care. Tell us what you've been doing. Uh, So a a year or so ago, I launched a petition in Luxembourg to expand the pediatric oncology unit. So we do have an oncologist, an amazing oncologist here in Luxembourg, and they were working out of a day hospital. So at the time that Caroline was diagnosed with cancer, we had to travel to Paris for all the treatments except the surgery. So all of the chemo, all of the radiation. And as you can imagine, it takes its toll. It's about a four-hour drive at the best of times. Um, And so the petition had to garner over 4,500 signatures in order to be debated in Parliament, which it did. So we went to Parliament, we presented our our story, uh, we spoke at length, one of our oncologists came with us to support us. Um, And then we had a unanimous vote in favour of the expansion of the paediatric cancer unit. So now... in 2023, at the time of this interview, the, the new beds are being built so that it was my dearest hope that other parents that would come after us and other families would be able to stay closer to home when they were getting these treatments and, and not have to travel. Oh, my goodness, you're making a difference. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> That's extraordinary. Uh, did you ever imagine that, you know, your efforts would, would get to these levels? I didn't, you know, it was my first, it was my first foray into any kind of grassroots initiative, and uh, I mean, no one was safe from me when we needed petition signatures. I, I spoke to every parent, every person I could find, and um, this year I started a new job, and uh, one of the ladies I work with said, "Hey, I don't know you, but I signed your petitions." <laughs> uh, so it was a great feeling. Well, that's simply amazing, Julia. Well done, you and Caroline. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. 
Imagine now, uh, her family went through enough uh, with their little girl uh, being diagnosed with brain cancer and having to uh, get on a busy highway and travel for every treatment in Paris, France, would you imagine? Four hours drive away, as she said, on the best of days, and to go back and forth there and, and live through that experience and say, you know what? We're going to change this for other people so they don't have to go through what we just went through. That is so selfless. You know, after the treatments are done, she could have just went on with her life went and not getting her life. concerned with it. But yeah. now she's making changes for strangers. And went all the way to the legislature mm-hmm. in Luxembourg. And just to have the weight of the oncologist you know, as well to join in solidarity. I just think it was so moving when I heard that. Well, that's just amazing. So that entire family, uh, you know, making a mark from here in Newfoundland, (laughs) making a mark in Luxembourg. I'm sure if you asked the average person walking on the street in Luxembourg, where's Newfoundland? They'd say, I'm sorry, where where are you talking about? I had to do that for Luxembourg. I didn't realize (laughs) it was like a landlock between Germany and France. Yeah, it's it's in there in that sort of area. Yeah, area. Yeah, (laughs) uh, not too far from Switzerland and the like. So, yeah, uh, really... Uh, amazing. So good on them. That's amazing. And and just the child, you know, yeah. to have $100 for a child. I mean, would you even do that at a lemonade stand? You know, and then to be 1000 It's pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah, it is impressive indeed. So uh, uh, all the best to the Dauphiné family in Luxembourg from Newfoundland. I forgot to ask her when she's coming back home. Ah, oh, you can always send her off an email. We want to know. We're, we're, I feel like we, we're invested in this story. <laughs> <laughs> and I understand her mom goes over there from time to time and oh, sweet. enjoys time over in Europe and that and has made friends over there. So that's all great stuff. Uh, anyway, that's it for us for today. We'll be back tomorrow. Do join us then. Thanks for listening, everyone.